Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the Analog Determinacy. Our host is Dr. Adam Laufel, co-founder and vice president for research at the National Institute for Deterrence Studies. The ANWA Deterrence Center is a 501c3 organization ensuring a broader understanding of the nation's strategic nuclear deterrence and its ongoing modernization. Thank you for listening and welcome to the show. The views of the host and the guests are their own. Welcome back to NucleCast. Of course, as always, we have a great episode for you today. And as always, I'm your host, Adam Lowther, and today we have a great guest. Dr. Zachary Davis is a senior fellow at the Center for Global Security Research at Lawrence Livermore National Labs, and he has been all over government, served in the IC and on Capitol Hill and at the White House. He's got a lot of great experience. So, Zach, uh, thanks for joining us on this episode of NucleCast. Thanks, Adam. Good morning. Looking forward to it. So we were talking before the show about our discussion today, and you had mentioned that you think we might be at an inflection point in global politics, in the geostrategic environment, where what we thought was sort of our standard norm or was would hold to be true may no, may no longer be true. Could you start us off by telling us what you mean and what you think is going on in the international environment? Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, historians uh, generally, you know, look at, at at our, you know, human history in sort of two ways. There's there's the lumpers and the splitters, right? So the this is the way John Lewis Gaddis talked about the Cold War, and uh, you know the the splitters are are the people who know a whole lot about something very specific, right? So this is the forest and trees kind of question, and the lumpers are the people who take this very broad, you know, geostrategic view and look back at human history and try and lump together big eras, right? So this is your, you know, your your Toynbees and the, you know, Samuel Huntingtons and the you know, broad scope of history. And so I think I would fall into that sort of lumper category in viewing the circumstances uh, today as of being of really historic proportions. That is, we're leaving something behind and entering something new. And it's something that has the proportions, that has the scope uh, that, that, you know, in, in the long view of history, will stand out as a real turning point, an inflection point. And so we're moving from something um, that we thought we understood to something uh, that is entirely new. And it doesn't have uh, many sort of precedents. So, you know, Westphalian, you know, the, the, the way we think about the international system and world order um, and the way that we developed our nuclear theories in the context of this bipolar Cold War distribution of power and the, you know, the struggle between the United States and Soviet Union in the aftermath of the Second World War and the global order that built up in that time with the United States being the preponderant power and really lending its, um, its newfound role in leading the world 
to de developing institutions and what we call now this, uh, you know, rules-based global order. Uh, and I, th I think what, what I'm proposing to you in terms of an inflection point is that that order that we thought we knew uh, is now kind of in a shambles. And that's through a, a, a combination of things that are, you know, interesting and worth discussing. But for our purposes, I, I think it's fair to say that the old order uh, in which the nuclear order and, and nuclear weapons and their role in the international system uh, is, is, is changing in important ways. And so a lot of what we thought we knew about the role of nuclear weapons is, is now um, being recast. So let me ask you, you know, many people talk about we have a three-body problem. You know, the Cold War legacy is is no longer relevant. And I've been thinking about it because somebody mentioned uh, that this idea of a three-body problem and said, "Well, do we really have one?" And and as I've thought about it, I've wondered. You know, I I would aspire to sort of this view of you know, I think you guys have written about it at at CGSR this idea of cross-domain deterrence, that that's a growing challenge that we have, that tailored deterrence is important now. But for the the challenge of, is it a three-body problem? I still think it's probably a two-body problem because of the, the sort of the nature of the challenge. And that is, while Russia has different history, different interests, different culture, different strategic culture than China, you still have two dictators, two authoritarians with similar regimes that have, in some respects, very similar interests. Authoritarians want to stay in power. They sort of look at the, they both want to essentially topple the Western-led, American-created international system. So there's enough commonalities that for the United States, to me, it seems like it's still a two-body problem instead of being a very distinct three-body problem, even if Russia, China, North Korea, potentially Iran are, are very different as, as countries and cultures and peoples. Am I looking at this the wrong way? Is there something I'm missing? <laughs> well, I think part of uh, the inflection point is uh is is the understanding that the deterrence architecture and the force posture that we developed throughout the Cold War was was almost entirely focused on deterrence against the Soviet Union, and we rolled that over um, when and we rolled that over to Russia, and and that seemed to be. Um, and I'm going to introduce this this always uh, a tricky term, but stability, right? But that there was a sense that deterrence, uh, you know, had had survived uh, and made the transition, um, and that the United States and Russia were still in this kind of bipolar deterrence relationship. Over those years, and there was an interim transitional period from the collapse of the Soviet Union, and so that was the post-Cold War era, and now we're in the post-post-Cold War era, or some would say post-post-post-Cold War era, 
And one of the things that uh, people in the government in particular, but scholars as well, were, were hesitant to accept is, is, is nuclear deterrence with China as a peer competitor, right? Our, our arsenal wasn't designed that way, and our theories weren't designed that way. Um, and we've been resisting that. And, uh, and, and, and it was never sort of officially sanctioned that we were in a, a, a second bilateral nuclear deterrence relationship uh, with, with Beijing. And that is now changing, right? So let's, that's your, your another end body, right? So th- then you add to that the, the, the complexity, right? I mean, this is, this is the underlying problem is that the complexities start to really snowball on you because then you, 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 you look at Russia, China, and their ongoing rivalry and what the, the appearance or the, the uh, uh, assertion of, of their being in an alliance and what that really means. But anyone who knows their history knows that that, that doesn't go very far. Um, and so now we're, you know, they're deterring each other in some way. But now let's add India into the mix, right? So there's the India-China dynamic. And that now has been fully nuclearized. Um, and then the daisy chain quickly moves to Pakistan, India, and Pakistan's relationship with China. So these are all nuclear states in a competitive relationship. Um, and, and while we are not viewing India and Pakistan as necessarily nuclear, nuclear rivals, it certainly adds levels of complexity to these, you know, major um, deterrence relationships that we are focused on. And you might say the same thing about North Korea. Are we in a nuclear deterrence relationship? So when people talk about North Korea and they say, well, you just have, you know, there's no chance of denuclearization. You're just going to have to face it, right? That that it is what it is and it ain't going nowhere. And, and, and Kim Jong-un and his regime are not going anywhere. So uh, maybe their weapons are really for deterrence. And maybe if we leave them be, um, you know, we can have some sort of a deterrence relationship. Well, you could add on to that pile uh, the Iranians. And people are also saying, uh, well, you know, it didn't, didn't work trying to walk back their program. Um, we lost the JCPOA. Um, they're moving forward. Everyone knows it. Maybe deterrence will work, right? Maybe maybe we're in a deterrence relationship with the Iranians. So the the point that I'm making about the inflection point is that the theories uh, about nuclear deterrence are all kind of my age. You know, <laughs> they're old. Um, and, and they came from the 50s and 60s and 70s. So when we think about, you know, Bernard Brody and the absolute weapon and Albert Holstetter and the delicate balance of terror and Herman Kahn and escalation ladders and Thomas Schelling and the whole game theory approach, you know, to our field. When you add all these other actors, the end body problem becomes, you know, at some point it over it overwhelms the, the, the understanding that we thought we had. I mean, that's, that's just at least my opinion um, 
of where we are today. And the good side of that is I think that we are right now uh, enjoying a bit of a, of a little renaissance in uh, nuclear theories and, and nuclear thought in that people really are having to go back to the drawing board in, in, a, in a positive way and say, well, what does complexity mean for nuclear deterrence and what do you have to do uh, to, to deter in this kind of an environment uh, where you've got many more actors and a lot more um, uncertainty, volatility, uh, contentiousness. Um, I would add to that that one of the other fundamental building blocks of our deterrence theories was, you know, <laughs> that that stability meant you would not be threatening uh, nuclear use, right? That if you had a stable deterrence relationship, all the actors that understand that there was too much at stake to be making nuclear threats. Well, that turns out to be wrong <laughs> as well. So another building block in our in our wall has, has kind of dissolved in front of us, leaving us wondering, well, you know, Putin says he's going to use them. Um, North Korea is making nuclear threats. President Xi says he's going to have the biggest arsenal in, in 10 years. Uh, these are not the kind of things that go along with the sort of, you know, stability, stability um, that, that we used to see as, as the kind of primary objective uh, of nuclear deterrence. So, you know, it's a new world. I, I would say that it's far more complex than what we've known in the past. This episode of NucleCast is brought to you by the Anwa Deterrence Center, whose mission is to educate Americans about the nuclear enterprise and strategic deterrence. Yeah, that, that seems definitely the case that... and. and as you guys have have written about in terms of cross domain, you know, if you can achieve an effect on, you know, in cyberspace that has a similar, you know, similar destructive force in terms of, let's say using a cyber attack to shut down uh PNT or to shut down electric grids or shut down whatever that then, you know, ripples across a country's society and can cause mass casualty chaos. Or, you know, if you take out space and you take out PNT and the, you know, electric grid shuts down from that and the banks shut down and, you know, all these ripple effects, can can you deter that with nuclear? Or it, so when you talk about complexity, these these new domains and just saying, well, how do I deter that? And if, if I get an attack in this domain, can I use, a, you know, this other domain? Or is that, you know, how does that work? So those complexities, certain, they certainly seem to be there. How are you thinking about, because this is one of those areas where, you know, I don't think we have sort of a, a con escalation ladder where you can say, well, a cyber attack of this significance, you know, equates to a nuclear strike with this many weapons of this, you know, of, of this yield or a space attack. We don't really have that yet. We, we, we sort of, we've never really had a cyber war, so it's hard to say, how do you respond? We've never had a space war, so we've never, we don't have, you know, it's sort of like the, 
the aerial, the bombing survey after World War II, where you had all these theories about air power. And then after you use it, you then get to go in and look at what happened and say, well, we were kind of wrong about these things. We've not been able to do that in space and cyber. So how are y'all thinking about and how are you thinking about this whole relationship of domains and and new ones and working them into the, you know, the escalation ladder or, or however you're thinking about them? What are you doing? Yeah, well, I mean, that, that that's <laughs> so, so that's the big challenge. Right. Um, so the, the, the domains. Right. Have. I've always kind of been there, but now they've been broken out as major areas of of military, um, political, and economic competition. And and what you're what you're saying, Adam, is is absolutely right. Is you know these these domains are entangled, um, and so this entanglement of the domains means that you know you can't really do domain specific deterrence. Um, that is, you know, nuclear to nuclear, chem to chem, bio to bio, cyber to cyber, you know, space stays in space. Um, everything is so entangled, right? And particularly when we're talking about cyber and space, where they're not only entangled with, you know, military applications crossing over from nuclear to conventional, but they're entangled with civilian infrastructure, right? So you know, you're, you're faced with a real problem of uh, proportionality and response in kind, right? You're not going to probably respond to a cyber attack with a nuclear weapon. You're probably, you know, you, you get the point. Um, and so you have to think about all of these, these capabilities kind of in concert, right? And, and that's where cross-domain complex deterrence requires that you have a, a you know, it's the, I'm, I'm, I'm getting an image of like the, you know, man behind the curtain in the Wizard of Oz or uh, what people would call the mighty Wurlitzer, you know, a bunch a machine with lots of levers and dials. And, you know, so what people are, are trying to think about now uh, are like how to turn the dial up in the right area to get the right sound, right? And a lot of this comes, if you're talking about deterrence, you're talking about signaling, right? You're not necessarily doing it right off the bat. You're probably signaling your enemy like, yeah, you know, the consequences of you doing those kinds of things uh, will 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 bring, um, you know, uh, very unpalatable uh, uh, consequences for you. Right. So you want to think twice before you do these sorts of things. Um, but that's where people are now. But what's really interesting from a nuclear standpoint is that you're working with an arsenal that, you know, came from this other time of history. Right. And, and there's the unique history of the Cold War itself and then the post-Cold War period when the U.S. and Russian arsenals were greatly reduced and we had cooptor threat reduction and, and arms control played a big role in finding this kind of stable balance. Um, and all of that seems to be blown out of the water, right? That, that, that this old arsenal that we've been polishing and keeping, you know, ready sort of, but maybe in the way that you, you know, you, you, uh, 
you know, you on a Sunday you go out and polish your '67 Impala, you know, and 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 do some, you know, change the spark plugs and get it ready for you know the parade day. Um, so we've got these, you know, really cool classic cars, um, but maybe that's if if you were opening up your mind to think, you know, is that and and the term. Um, is fit for purpose, right? Is this the right tool for the job given the current circumstances? And that gets into the the controversies that we're having these days, which is, you know, uh, with the arms control and disarmament folks saying, oh, you, you know, they're going back to Brody and the absolute weapon, right? One would be enough, right? Everyone knows that. You don't need, you know, for this fit for purpose, you know, to be, calibrated, you know, to these complex threats, making a couple of nuclear threats, you're done. Um, whereas others would say, and you saw this, just this new congressional mandated study come out a couple of weeks ago, where there was a very broad consensus. Uh, and, and this was amongst, you know, um, people from both sides of the aisle, and, and with different histories, agreeing that the, that the current arsenal, that 67, you know, Impala, Chevy Impala, was was not going to compete in the world as it exists, and that with Russia moving ahead aggressively to develop its own uh, new weapons and weapons that they believe are, you know, fit for their current purposes, and China going big in a way that, you know, ten years ago people. Uh, thought was probably unlikely, um, but but that has come to pass. And with other actors coming into play with the ability to, you know, to reach the United States in theory and in practice, um, you know, maybe this old arsenal uh, needs needs something more, right? And so that's, that's where we are today to, to answer your question. Uh, the nuclear part of this uh, needs needs to be fully represented and the other domains uh, can't compensate, right, for for the nuclear deterrence parts of this. And so, you know, you can't compensate with cyber. You can't compensate with space. You can't, and this is where it gets really interesting and complicated, you can't really compensate with conventional, although that that is something we've been, you know, very interested in trying to do. Um, you can't compensate only with defenses. And so there, there is a, a thought that, uh, you, you know, the, the arsenal that we have now is, is not necessarily fit for purpose. Yeah, it's a, you bring up a good point. And, you know, when you talk about, Stability. Stability has been one of those things that's always bugged me because as I hear people writing about strategic stability, I've never seen a really good definition. I've never really seen a way to objectively measure strategic stability. But what I do hear a lot of is, is this idea of that well, you, the people I disagree with, whatever you want to do, that's destabilizing. And whatever I want to do is stabilizing. And just take my word for it. And that that kind of 
that kind of thinking about stability is really not helpful. I want a, a very, you know, significant definition that I can then effectively measure. And I don't see that. That's something I don't see. Do do you, and so that my question, question one is, do you think that sort of objective measure and definition exists? And then my, my second question is, is it sounds like what you're saying is that the psychological effect of nuclear weapons that is sort of hypothesized in prospect theory, where you, you know, they say humans value, they overvalue losses and undervalue gains, that that sort of holds true still. And that nuclear weapons are that loss that people just say, I can't go there yet. And then is that what you're saying? Which then leads me to my final question, which is, you know, the former secretary of defense who shall not be named because of his, you know, his lack of popularity, who once said, weakness is provocative. And, and do you think that that's a statement that holds true in sort of the strategic environment we're moving into? And I'll stop there. Yeah, well, you know, let, let's cut to the chase, right? Let's go to the heart of deterrence. What, what, what is deterrence and what makes it successful or, or, you know, or what makes deterrence fail? And at the heart of it is, as you're suggesting, fear, right? So it, it, it appeals to what we assume to be a, a basic human quality that you, you know, people individually and collectively, which matters, right, when you're talking about, you know, Kim Jong-un, who probably cares more about himself uh, than his people, or in the United States, where we really do uh, have the the well being of our of our people and our country um, first and foremost. So the assumption is that uh, deterrence works because people want to survive; they want to continue, and therefore, logically, rationally, right, the rational actor would not do things that he or she uh, believed would bring about, you know, the end of their existence, the end of their, their country, the end of their family, the end of their life, at whatever level of analysis you, you want to take it to, right? But it applies, right? And, and so I guess the good news would be that hasn't changed, right? You can still, we're still banking on that. Right. Deterrence in the modern context still banks on, uh, you know, fear of 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 death and and fear of losing everything that you value. And and so, I mean, that that is the also the heart of the 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 paradox. Right. The stability, instability paradox that you're referring to here, Um, whereas, you know, stability comes from threats. Stability comes from threats to do the unthinkable, all right? Stability doesn't necessarily come from a, 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 an equal balance, right? Stability comes from the assured outcomes. 
And to, to make sure that you have assured outcomes, sometimes, you know, you have to develop capabilities that the adversary is uncomfortable with, right? You don't want everybody to be comfortable. You want everybody to be fearful. And so that, you know, stability comes from instability, from making these sorts of threats. And, and that gets to the heart of, you know, what deters, right? What kind of an arsenal would you need to persuade multiple actors, right? So maybe you need, and this is the point you brought up earlier about tailored deterrence, right? Maybe you need a specific deterrent crafted to Putin's mind and to, and to Russia. Maybe you need a different kind of deterrent uh, crafted uh, towards, towards China and, and Xi and the PLA. And, and their aspirations. And maybe you need a different kind of deterrent that is uh, takes into account the things that are valued by your adversary. And this is what my, 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 my colleague and, and the director of CGSR talks a lot about the red theory of victory and the blue theory of victory, right? And, and that's, that, that, that means, you know, red uh, has their own way of thinking about this and they understand our vulnerabilities and part of what has happened in this inflection point is that the russians have taken their measure of of our deterrent and the chinese uh have studied us very carefully and taken the measure of us and our deterrent so they uh read uh have a theory of victory and and they believe uh certain things about how far they can push us in the current context. And, and that's what we're coping with, you know, in Ukraine and and trying to ward off with Chinese aggression in the uh, Indo-Pacific. Um, I would add, you know, the, the other big part of this is is the extended deterrent aspect, right? Which is that part of our crafting of, of, of domain-specific and country-specific specific deterrence profiles uh, is that, you know, we, we include our allies and that we offer uh, the, you know, the, the nuclear security guarantees to our allies. Um, and of course, you know, it's different in NATO, you know, requires some different kinds of assurances and probably some different types of weapons. And it's different when we're talking about uh, Japan, because of their specific needs and the specific way that they think about their threats and their security. And with the Republic of Korea, our allies there have their own sense of uh, priorities. You know, their, their, their threat analysis is a little bit different. And so now you're, you're, you're asking to craft a deterrent format uh, that is, is very different. And, and then it comes down to, you know, what you're working with. And back to the 67 Chevy Impala, um, maybe you drive that around, right? You drive, you know, maybe we drive our B-52s around uh, and show everybody, hey, you know, <laughs> we, we got it. It's, it's cool. Uh, but maybe not everyone thinks it's that cool, right? Maybe, maybe others would say, you know, that's a piece of junk. Um, so... You know, uh, the, the, that stability-instability paradox that you're talking about, 
it's universal and yet you, it, it, it's very different in each regional circumstance. Yeah. Now, unfortunately, we're running out of time in the show. But before we go, I wanted to bring out Bob, my genie, and I'll rub my magic lamp. Bob pops out. And as with all previous guests, Bob grants three wishes, but only on the subjects we've been talking about. That's his, that's Bob's a genie. He can do that. So for Bob to grant you your three wishes, what wishes would you have? Well, I, I will, I'll refrain from a, 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 a more, you know, personal uh, <laughs> objectives and stay within the game, right? When we're doing war games, right, you can't go outside of the game. got to stay in the game. So I'll stay in your game. Uh, so one, one would be uh, that, that we go ahead, the United States goes ahead, and modernizes its entire nuclear enterprise. Um, you know, that they're old. Um, if you've been to the lab, you know, people are, are sometimes surprised, right? <laughs> like, wow, this is like a 1950s school. You know, this is like the school I went to in, you know, in, in Long Beach, you know, I mean, it, it, um, it needs an upgrade and, and we need to rethink, you know, how we do this. And that, that wish goes to the replacement of the 1940s, 50s, and 60s um, fabrication equipment to more modern methods, right? And we've got to get with the fourth industrial age, right? So I would say that let the, that we, my wish would be that we apply all the best of uh, modern technologies to our nuclear enterprise. That'd be one. Uh, two okay. would be wish that, number two. Wish number two uh, that uh, that our allies would have confidence in the nuclear security guarantees that we have provided and will continue to offer. Um, and the reason for that, of course, is uh, for those countries that are facing real uh, security dilemmas, right? Where, where, where they feel threats that they must address to their, to their existence. Um, they have a choice of either going it alone and getting their own nuclear weapons or trusting us and trusting the security guarantees that we have, have provided to them and my wish would be that we would give them the reassurance that they need and that they would trust us and believe in those assurances rather than go it alone. Because if they go it alone, you'll see the complete you know, blowout of the nuclear nonproliferation regime. And the problem that we were talking about earlier with the complexity of nuclear weapons uh, relationships throughout the world it gets a lot worse. So, you know, I think that would be, that, that would be number two is that extended deterrence um, survive. And then the third would be that the 
next generation, you know, the young people uh, who are coming into this field, uh, dedicate themselves and their careers, you know, to to grappling with this problem because they're seeing, you know, for a long time it's been an old old white guy thing, um, and I still, you know, and anyone everyone knows this if you've been to any meetings, um, it's really mostly old white guys. And what I would hope is that the future includes, uh, you know, more diversity, and 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 that 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 we make good on on these sort of platitude. I mean, often this diversity, equity, inclusion thing that we say is is just a nice thing to say, but I think we're going to need all hands on deck and. Everybody in our society, um, you know, lend a hand and be a part of the, you know, grappling with these really hard problems. So I'd say I, I hope that the nuclear enterprise looks more like America. Yeah, I mean, it, it you know, it affects the threats affect us all. So, you know, a nuclear conflict doesn't only kill old white guys. So it's, you know, it's important everybody <laughs> participates and. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So, well, thanks. Uh, you know, unfortunately we're out of time. So thanks for joining us, Zach. It was great having you on Nuclecast. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, Adam. Thanks. I, I appreciate it. And thanks to you, the listeners for joining us and we hope you'll join us on the next episode. This has been a production of the Amla Deterrence Center. A 501c3 that seeks to educate key decision makers, stakeholders, and the public to ensure a broader understanding of the nation's strategic nuclear deterrent. Our executive producer is Kimberly Jamington, and this episode has been engineered and mixed by David Crumpel. Help us grow our followers by sharing it and follow the show on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Nuclear.